You're listening to Answers Network with Alan Cardoza, only on L.A. Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us and welcome to another edition of Answers Network. I'm your host, Alan Cardoza. And for those of you that have been listening, sending in questions and comments, thank you so much. And please continue to help spread the word that this show brings on special guests that can inspire, educate, and in some cases, entertain, while bringing answers and options to making our lives happier, healthier, and more successful. And remember, if you can't listen live, go to our website at answers.network and browse through a variety of heartfelt topics and find one that works for you. I would also like you to do me a big favor. Please forward one of our shows to your social media group or to someone you know who can benefit from a particular show. This is one powerful way that we can make a positive difference in the world together. Now, our topic today is also the title of our guest's new book, The Kennedys in the World, How Jack, Bobby, and Ted Remade America's Empire. Our guest, Lawrence J. Haas, is an award-winning journalist and former senior White House official. He is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and a columnist on foreign affairs, as well as a TV and radio commentator. He is the author of five other books, including Harry and Arthur, Truman Vanderberg, and The Partnership That Created the Free World, which is According to the Wall Street Journal, it's been named one of the top 10 fiction books of 2016. Larry, welcome to Answers Network. Nice to be here, Alan. I should correct just one thing. You said okay. one of the top 10 fiction books. It's actually, I only write nonfiction. Nonfiction. Yes, oh. one of the top 10 nonfiction books of 2016 and actually came out in paper this year. Yes. Well, thank you for that. And, uh, uh, I'm going to have to, when I'm transferring my notes, I'm going to have to prove them a little better. Quite uh, all right. But, but um, yes. Uh, so, yeah, I know we had a little technical difficulty getting started, but now that we're here. Um, but you know, before we get to the your new book, uh, share with us, you know, what was your driving force that got you to focus on politics and specifically the Kennedys? Oh, um, well, with regard to uh, the Kennedys, I had written uh, other books of the post-World War II period. Uh, so that's number one. It, it's of great interest to me, America's global role, because it's such a special role that we have had in the world for the last 75 years. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, uh, I worked in Washington and I also have a background in history. I have a master's from, uh, in history, majored in history in college. And so I knew quite a bit about Jack and Bobby Kennedy. And I worked as a journalist in Washington and watched Ted Kennedy. And I was really intrigued by some of the things that he was doing on foreign policy and how they reflected Jack and Bobby and sometimes did not reflect Jack and, and Bobby. So I got very intrigued uh, and did more research and discovered what I thought was a new story, which was that uh, the Kennedys were not just groomed to succeed, but they were groomed to look abroad, to learn and care about the world and to make a difference in America's global role in the world once they attain power. So this is a rich human story about the three brothers 
how they were raised, what they learned, and how they put all of it from their travels and their studies and their writings uh, into operation once they attain power. So share with us um, um, how you believe the Kennedy's role shaped policy and politics throughout not only our country, but throughout the world, uh, and how you feel that those, those global impacts um, have continued today. Well, uh, Jack, Bobby, and Ted, uh, up through Jack's death in 1963, were all what you would call hardcore Cold Warriors. Uh, they bought into what was called the, what was known as the Cold War Consensus, which was America's biggest challenge was to uh, constrain Soviet communism, constrain Soviet expansionism. Uh, Jack rewrote America's Cold War policy because he thought that the Cold War would be won not in Europe, but across the developing world, what we used to call the third world. And mm -hmm. so he reoriented policy towards Africa, Latin America, Asia, and tried to build alliances with what you would call nations of color, uh, because he thought that really building alliances with hundreds of millions of people at the grassroots was the key to America getting more loyalty and strength around the world. Uh, so all three brothers bought into this. Uh, but then we come to, you know, Jack's death and we mm -hmm. come to LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, taking over and militarizing the effort in Vietnam. And through that disaster, as it unfolds, uh, we see Bobby and Ted transformed from hardcore cold warriors into what you would call more like liberal humanitarians. They still take the Soviet challenge very seriously, but mm -hmm. they see that Vietnam has become a bigger challenge than the Soviet Union. And while they retain this hatred for communism, uh, and while they also reflect Jack's desire to control the world's deadliest weapons, to you know, uh, promote human rights, and to reach out to this developing world, um, they become much more suspicious of the use of American power. And you see, the, you see uh, Ted even more so through the debates over whether we should take military action in Iraq, for instance. Mm -hmm. And Ted uh, was pretty alone in opposing the effort in 1991. And he was out front in opposing the effort in 2003. So we see mm -hmm. continuity across the three Kennedy brothers, but we see change as well. And in many ways, their leadership and their experience really reflects America's history uh, yeah. in terms of foreign affairs throughout the, the uh, post-World War II period. You know, um, probably over the last maybe 20 years, um, we hear a lot uh, and, and more so, I think, from, um, from people that are really focused on what's going on politically that you know, if the Kennedys were here today, you know, this is right. what would happen. Or, you know, you know, you know, if, you know, if, if Jack Kennedy was here today or if Bobby was here today, this is what they would be doing. But why don't you tell us as an insider, what's your perspective of what each one of the Kennedys would be thinking in regards to the state of America today? Well, they'd be appalled at the uh, partisanship for sure. Uh, they'd be appalled at, uh, you know, the whole uh, Trump era. 
uh, for a variety of reasons. The, the, the disrespect for the office of the presidency, which all three of them took uh, very seriously. They'd be very worried about isolationist trends in both parties because mm-hmm. they were all committed to this new post-World War II uh, special role for America. Uh, because they believe that, and Jack was very eloquent on this early on, as and then following, as were Bobby and Ted, that if we don't stand up for freedom and democracy, it will not survive. And so it's no surprise that as we have in many ways lost our voice over the last two or three administrations, this proud voice for freedom and democracy, uh, freedom and democracy have shrunk. Uh, mm-hmm. around the world over the last 15 years. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, so um, they would all be very worried about isolationism. They would all see very seriously the threat of the Soviet, uh, of the Soviet Union, excuse me, as they saw the threat of the Soviet Union, they would all see the threat of China. This uh, alternative uh, mode of governance this authoritarianism, this promotion that both Beijing and Moscow and even Tehran uh, and other autocracies are giving to the United States. So you've got a real war of ideas that they, all three of them, would have taken uh, very seriously. And I'd say finally, with the shrinking of freedom and democracy, they all would have been very uh, proud promoters of um, human rights around the world, as Biden is trying to do in in reaction to Trump, who doesn't seem to understand the difference between democracies and authoritarian regimes. And even before that, Obama had had been reluctant to promote human rights as most of our post-war presidents have done. So Biden's trying to climb out from it. Certainly the Kennedys, all three of them, or each of them, would have taken the lead in trying to resurrect that voice for freedom and democracy around the world. Um, You know, and I certainly agree that uh, that was something that, you know, being somebody that was around at that time uh, as to what the Kennedys were, were promoting. I am surprised that you have mentioned Biden from the standpoint of trying to uh, to get back to that, because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't see anything close to that. In fact, well, it seems it's like- not close to that. I would say, Alan, it's not close to that. I agree with you. Uh, he is cl- he is trying to climb out of where we have been for the last couple of administrations. But what I what the reason I say that is because he has uh, criticized uh, certainly Putin in very blunt terms, in terms of the jailing Mm -hmm. of the opposition leader, Navalny, who is now in prison. He has spoken about human rights in China, which is a growing concern. I do not want to in any way insinuate that in his uh, voice, he is the consistent, beautiful, poetic promoter of, of freedom as Jack Kennedy was, or even as Bobby and Ted were in his aftermath. I'm just saying he's trying to resurrect it in some way. But to your point, you don't you don't see the similarity. I can certainly understand that because he is going slowly. Yeah. Um, 
one of the things that that I really enjoyed being able to to I wasn't able to finish, but being able to read part of the book mm-hmm. was um, examples of of stories of of things that that I think a lot of people don't realize. Uh, can you share with us, uh, you know, an example of sort of an incredibly rich and riveting story uh, that happened out of the public eye that most people would not realize that that was going on? Well, I think the whole, I would say two things. Um, I, I don't think most people understand that not only did all three of the brothers travel widely uh, from an, a pretty early age, I mean, from their teen years, each of them went overseas, but it's not just that they wanted to. Joe Kennedy told them, you need to go overseas. So Jack, you know, travels all across Europe. Uh, in 1935, when he's only about oh. 18, uh, comes back, you know, to London and works for his father, who was the U.S. ambassador at the time in London. Uh, Joe sends Bobby on a six-month tour across Europe and the Middle East in 1948, when Bobby would have been 23. Uh, that is a long time, and also Ted in his early 20s, travels widely across Africa. So that's number one, the travels. Number two, which I'm sure very few people know, Joe arranged for each of the three brothers to work as foreign correspondents for newspapers Mm -hmm. or newspaper chains. So Jack wrote uh, from overseas for Hearst Newspapers. Bobby wrote uh, a series of four front page stories about the Middle East for the Boston Post. And uh, Ted wrote uh, from Africa for the International News Service. So they all have backgrounds in journalism. The reason Joe did mm-hmm. that is that they he wanted to, in essence, position them as global thinkers for audiences back home, presumably that presuming that they were going to enter mm-hmm. public service. But it's it's the travels and the writings are extraordinary, and they're, they're all three of them are very very gifted writers. All right. So would you say that Joe was the driving force behind all three brothers' ambition to focus on the world uh, at at large and to shape the U.S.'s role in it? Uh, He was the driving uh, force, but I have to tell you, uh, Rose played a role in that because in her youth, uh, she actually traveled widely and passed on uh, that interest uh, to her children. Uh, She traveled widely because her father, uh, John Honeyfitz Fitzgerald, the former Boston mayor and U.S. representative, uh, traveled widely. He was fascinated by the world, uh, in essence, passed on that fascination to Rose, uh, who then passed it on to the three boys. So Joe, in terms of operationally telling mm-hmm. them, Here's, you need to go, here's where you should go. But, but Rose, just in terms of the trait that she passed on to her children. That's great. So our guest right now is Lawrence J. House, and the book is The Kennedys in the World, How Jack, Bobby, and Ted Remade America's Empire. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. You're listening to or watching Answers Network. Founded over 30 years ago to meet the needs of families in crisis. Westshield has continually focused on resolving issues that negatively impact families and businesses. Our signature therapeutic transportation service helps to ensure that adolescents in crisis 
are safely transported to specialized school programs and treatment centers with unsurpassed experience and success. We are supported by our full-service licensed investigation agency that has legally, professionally, and compassionately located hundreds of runaways and teens. We are experienced and qualified to help, offering solutions which may include referrals to our international network of top professionals in the fields of educational consulting, psychology, psychiatry, and investigations. Simply put, West Shield Adolescent Services and West Shield Investigations are the best solutions when your family is facing a personal crisis. Call 1-800-899-8585, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's 1-800-899-8585, or visit our website at westshield.com. Thank you. We're back. I'm Alan Cardoza. Our guest is Larry Haas, and we're talking about the Kennedys. Uh, Larry, we have some uh, comments that have come in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, I want to thank those that take the time to send these in because we really appreciate it. I know many people work in the middle of the day. Some of these come in before the show. Uh, this one reads, I was 12 when JFK was murdered. And we have learned from various documents that he was about to disband the CIA and make other sweeping changes inside our government. In his speech about secrecy, he made the most amazing statement below. If you feel it would be appropriate, uh, I ask that you read the paragraph from that speech and ask your guests to comment on it. I feel it has great meaning right now uh, with all that we are going through as a nation. So that quote is, and again, for those just tuning in, this is a quote from a speech by John F. Kennedy. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is a very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control and no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. Uh, That is a quote from John F. Kennedy, uh, and this particular uh, question that's sent in, it's followed by, thank you so much, and this is by Nancy G., I'm sorry, Nancy J. Well, I've got a series of thoughts. Um, first of all, um, Jack was definitely evolving uh, throughout his presidency. And when he got to 1963, he was actually feeling much more confident about America and and its ability to compete with the Soviets, uh, not surprisingly, because of some of the things that he felt were necessary to do and that he mm-hmm. did. Uh, you know, we had this plan to race to the moon uh, that he announced in 1961. In 1963, feeling better about warming relations with the Soviets in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, he said at the UN, I believe in September of 63, just uh, you know, a couple of months before he died, he suggested that perhaps the United States and the Soviet Union ought to go together in a partnership. Mm-hmm. So that's that's you know 
remarkably different. With regard to this whole question of secrecy um, and controlling, look, he took institutions seriously, including the media. Like every president, he was bothered by certain coverage, uh, but there was never a question about treating the press like the enemy, uh, as Nixon did, as Trump tried to do, as some of our other presidents had a tendency to fall into. Um, he also uh, learned to distrust or at least be skeptical of the advice that he got from military leaders uh, because they all told him that the Bay of Pigs plan that he agreed to in April of 1961 would mm -hmm. end with the toppling of Fidel Castro in Cuba. What it actually wound up doing was strengthening Cuba as 1,500 of these Cuban emigres who had been trained by the United States went in there and essentially got slaughtered uh, because the uprising that the military and intelligence chiefs, uh, you know, were confident would happen uh, never came about. And from that point on, he really distrusted the military advice that he got. I cannot speak to the point about disbanding the CIA. Frankly, that's the first I've ever heard of that. I've not only researched heavily, but but read, you know, dozens and dozens of books about John Kennedy. That's the first, you are the first person who's ever said that to me. But in terms of making sure that we did not have an excessively secret government, that decisions are fully debated in the light of day, you know, to the extent possible, absolutely, because he learned to distrust uh, the military and intelligence chiefs and was not willing to just take them at their word in the advice that they were giving, fortunately, uh, because uh, the majority of them were insisting that we go in and bomb the Soviet missile sites in Cuba. And had we done that, rather than what Jack did, which was solve the problem diplomatically, uh, it might well have led to World War III. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, uh, that uh, that listener asked about, and they were referring to like dealing with the media. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just curious as to your opinion. How do you think the Kennedys today would deal with the media, which is now, I mean, with the internet and everything else, I mean, it's it's so much bigger and mm -hmm. has so much more influence. Um, what's your thoughts on? on actually how they might have, which might also be maybe a better way that we could do it. Right. So, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial by suggesting that the media, the way it is now, social media, as well as mainstream, uh, print broadcast uh, and online has, you know, led to the deterioration of public discourse and that mm -hmm. is so contrary to what Jack, Bobby, and Ted were about. If you read their speeches, particularly the ones that were in a non-political venue, just about America, about what it was like at home, about how special it was abroad, how much it could be a beacon of hope, uh, you know, that's that takes sophistication. That takes laying out an argument. And, you know, God bless these presidents. And I worked for Clinton just as, you know, the online world was coming about. Um, you know, it's harder. It's harder to sure. elevate debate. So uh, I don't know that any of the three of them would have played this game 
of having a Twitter account. I just, it just is contrary to who they were. I think they probably, you know, would have allowed others to have their Twitter accounts, but I, th I think they would have, you know, still tried to elevate the public discussion. Would it have been harder? Absolutely. But was it easy? I mean, are we, are we somehow stupider as a people? I don't think we are. Um, I just think that people have more tools to communicate whoever they are to communicate both sophisticated and unsophisticated points of view. So you look at Twitter and you know, what is it? Yes. It's a form of communication, but at the end of the day, it's very much like an intellectual cesspool uh, with people using, you know, not only derogatory, but, but quite disgusting language on it. It just, it wouldn't have suited uh, the three of them. And, you know, perhaps they would have been less effective operating in this, you know, terrain of rather than three trustworthy, you know, network shows on ABC, NBC and CBS. What do you have now? Debates on on, uh, you know, cable TV and yes. debates on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. I mean, think about Instagram. It's Instant. Instant. I mean, that's not who these three were. They were very, very thoughtful people. So they would have found it very challenging. Um, <clears throat> I have a thought, and I would love to have what your opinion of this one little point as it relates to media mm -hmm. is and what you think their opinion would have been. And that is, what if the, the media needed to be registered as your either news or your views and if if you are if you're presenting news that can be documented as news then you can continue to remain licensed or whatever it would be as a news organization but if you are putting your views out we're not going to take away the fact that you can put your views out. You can put it out. You just have to call it what it is. And so there would be two different forms of be it licensing, registering, or whatever it is. What's your opinion of that? What do you think their opinion would be? Uh, Alan, I understand the sentiment. And mm -hmm. I think it is important that we be, we as the American people, be sophisticated enough to separate fact from uh, fiction. But I suspect they, all three of them, would agree with what I'm about to say to you, which okay. is that when you start talking about licensing people, and uh, you know, you you do need to get credentials to cover Congress, to go into right. the press gallery. You do need credentials to be in the press room of the White House. So in that sense, there is already registration. But if you're talking about like mass licensing uh, through every form of entertainment and communication uh, in transmitting news, both mainstream and through social media, uh, frankly, it gives me the willies because, um, uh, you know, I worry for all the excesses that we have now, I still worry about, you know, moves towards regulation that make us more authoritarian than free. I don't want to exaggerate right. it, but, and I'm not suggesting that you're, that you want that, no. 
but it is a slippery slope. So I, I just would worry, and who's going to decide what is the difference between fact and opinion? Because after all, if you look on the right or you look on the left, uh, many things that are written as fact are in, in fact opinion, but right. the person who wrote it doesn't think their opinion. They think their reality. So it's, it's, I think you got to take the good with the bad. I agree with you. We're in a bad period when it comes to this. Um, I, there are certain social media companies that I think have an outsized influence and it's dangerous, but I just, I just worry. And I think the Kennedys all would have worried about this hint of you, you need to be licensed in some way. I just, I think they would worry about creeping government control and I, I would worry about it. Okay. I appreciate that. We, we have another comment that has come in, a question. It says, um, I met many of the Kennedy family when I lived in Palm Beach during the 80s, mm -hmm. but the one I really wanted to meet was JFK Jr., who mm -hmm. I felt might revive the legacy of his father and his uncle, Bobby, someday. Uh, uh, it was so sad when he was taken away from us as well in such a tragic accident. Do you speak about this uh, this amazing young man in your book. Uh, I am definitely going to buy the book regardless. I was just curious about your opinion of what John F. Kennedy Jr.'s future might have been. And this is from Alex in uh, Minnesota. Well, thanks for the question. Um, I, I go back in the book to the ancestry of uh, both Rose and Joe Kennedy back to the 1850s and their families coming over, you know, in the aftermath of the potato famine in, in, uh, in Ireland. And mm -hmm. I talk about Joe and Rose and how they groomed the boys. Uh, in all candor, I do not get into the second generation, but I do want to make a comment about John Kennedy Jr., uh, he had, I, I need not tell you how good looking he was. Uh, people joke about how good looking he was. That's the way people felt about Jack Kennedy, frankly. Uh, but beyond that, he had a, he certainly had a charisma and he, and he actually was quite intelligent. I mean, he did create a new magazine called mm -hmm. George. Uh, it was, you know, interesting in many ways, riveting. I think uh, John Jr. may very well have had a successful career uh, in government, in politics, which he may have done after uh, the journalism. And it is a tragedy. You know, uh, the ancestors of Jack, Bobby, and Ted are a mixed bag. Uh, a couple of uh, Jack's, excuse me, a couple of Bobby's kids went into politics. I know Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, who was the oldest of Bobby's 11 children. She was the, uh, she got as high as the lieutenant governor of Maryland. There was a, there was a, um, now I'm forgetting his first name, but one of, uh, oh, uh, I think it was uh, Robert uh, or, or now I'm, now I'm just missing the name. Anyway, one of Bobby's uh, uh, sons uh, was a house member here for a number of uh, terms. Uh, and Teddy's kids, one, you know, one of the sons served in the Rhode Island legislature as well as in the U.S. House. So they certainly have tried to pass on the legacy. But of course, we have other ancestors who have been, who have led troubled uh, and somewhat um, disreputable uh, lives. So we have not seen the consistency of public service in the next couple of generations. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think you're going to see 
the same thing that we saw with the Jack, Bobby, and Ted uh, legacy. But having said that, we've got now this um, uh, Joseph Kennedy the Fourth, who served in the House uh, quite admirably, ran for the Senate, lost in the primary, but is you know just created a nonprofit and is trying to do good things. So the legacy does live on, but just not with the intensity that it that it was in the generation of Jack, Bobby, and Ted. And I should point out Eunice Kennedy and Gene Kennedy mm-hmm. Smith, who were both very active in public service and made a difference. You know, I <clears throat> I I have so many questions, but it, it, we're running short of time and I want to make sure that we get the information out there that mm-hmm. uh, so um, do you have a favorite story from the book? And if you could share that as well as um, uh, then let's just make sure that everybody knows uh, where they can find it and how to get in touch with you. Well, let me take these in reverse order, if that's OK. okay. You can sure. easily get the book on Amazon. You can easily, if you want, to support your local bookstore, go in and ask for the book, and they certainly can order it. Some of them around the country are carrying it, and and others can easily get it. So uh, what you need to know is it's called The Kennedys in the World, and you need to know that I go by Lawrence Haas, H-A-A-S. That's what you need to know. Um, With regard to getting a hold of me, uh, my email is Larry at... Larry Haas online.com. Larry at Larry Haas online.com. You need to remember that Haas is H A A S. I am more than happy to engage with anyone who reaches out to me. So, so please do in terms of a favorite story from the book, my goodness, I have so many favorite stories uh, from the book. Um, I, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, I, I was intrigued. Oh, here's one that I haven't yeah. mentioned yet. I mentioned the travels. Well, yeah. um, Bobby uh, went across the Soviet republics in the early to mid 1950s with a family friend by the name of William Douglas, the same William Douglas who was this, who was serving on the Supreme Court at that moment. He was a friend wow. of Joe Kennedy. He was a friend of the family. Uh, they were over there in very remote areas for uh, a, a number of weeks and when Bobby came back, he wrote a long essay about the experience for the New York Times. He was mm-hmm. interviewed at great length by U.S. News and World Report. And he went on uh, many radio shows to talk about his views. And it won't surprise you that his views were, we need to remain strong because we do not want to wind up like them with no freedom and a very weak economy and millions of people uh, around that empire, uh, you know, lacking the wherewithal to lead uh, good, free, healthy lives. Mm-hmm. And while you were saying that, I was thinking that <clears throat> when Bobby's telling friends, family and such, OK, this is what I'm going to do. And then the people that worry that go, are you sure you're going to be okay? Are you sure you're not going to get in some sort of trouble over there or something like that? And it's like, well, I'm going with a Supreme Court judge. Right. <laughs> they actually tried for a few years uh, to get um, permission from the Soviets to take this trip. But the reason they got permission was it was in the period in which 
uh, Soviet premier Khrushchev was trying to promote a friendlier face to the world of Soviet communism. So it was no coincidence that they were allowed. But I, I must say, when they got back for all the friendliness that Khrushchev was trying to promote, they did not, you know, pull their punches. I mean, Bobby and mm-hmm. and Justice Douglas saw Douglas. terrible things and they were quite open about it. In fact, Douglas had to tell Bobby while they were there to tone it down because Bobby was getting into arguments with Soviet officials about the difference between capitalism and communism. Yeah, no, and I get that. And it's like, yeah, wait till we get home when you want to say that stuff right. because we want to make sure we get out of here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Larry, thank you so much for coming on. <clears throat> and and thank you for writing the book. Um, I think this is something that especially we're, we're in a time besides of everything that we're going through. What I'm finding is so many young people because civics has been taken out of so many right. of our schools. Right. And because it's out of our schools, I think there's a lot of young people that those, they don't understand this. This is, you know, this is so foreign to them. So I think to be able to go back and read about a time in which civics was important, right. civics was something that we all paid attention to in school and, uh, and it was required. So, yes. uh, so I think this may open a lot of eyes. So thank you for bringing and it to I, us. And I also think if I could just add one point, Alan, please, that I think among this young generation, I detect uh, 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 like an urging for a oh, larger yeah. purpose so I think they would resonate to a call that Jack made. Um, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I, I think there's something, even in our cynical times, that, that that would play to many of this younger generation that wants something to gravitate to, to give them meaning. Larry, it's a great quote. It's a mic drop. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Alan. All right. And for everybody out there, please be sure to watch or listen to us next Monday when we're going to be discussing an amazing new book called Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. So we are at a time with uh, medical advances that are so incredible that this is something you're not going to want to miss because these are things that are going to help all of us live a much longer life. And please visit our archives of past interviews at answers.network and subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, um, whatever platform you listen to us on, please subscribe and leave a review. It helps us. It, it will help us not only reach more people, but it will also help people know how to find the positive shows that are out there. The more positive shows we can get out there, the more people are going to shift and live a happier life. And remember, the next time you're on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, uh, please uh, remember to stop by our page, check out some of our latest shows. And if you like them, please like us and continue to spread the word, to spread the word, be good human beings, and be with us again next week on Answers Network. Hello, I'm Marty Cove. You might remember me from roles such as Sensei in the Karate Kid films. I've done over 100 films and countless stunts in my career, and I've always given 100%. With the damage done to my body over time, I needed to find relief from my chronic pain. My passion for health and fitness drove me to find a natural way to combat muscle pain. 
Teaming up with doctors, detectives, and a compounding pharmacist, we've created Marty's Cobra Cove Ultra Strength CBD Cream. It's the only thing that has been strong enough to knock out my pain. And fast. Honestly, you may have tried the rest, but it's time to try the best. It's legal, it's safe, and 100% effective. Show your pain. No mercy. Go to www.martyscobracove.com. You're listening to Answers Network with Alan Cardoza, only on LA Talk Radio. 